Hello and welcome to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. I'm your host, Thomas Drance, flying solo today. Jamie Dodd will be back with us next week. Canucks Talk, of course, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com for more info. All right, so let me break it down and tell you what we're going to do on the show today. You're, you're just with me, so that's two hours too many of Drance in your earballs. Get ready for it. I'm going to need your help. I'm not going to lie. Audience, I'm going to need your help, particularly in the first hour. So, segment one, I'm going to rant. That's what I do. Segment two, I figure we'll do a mailbag. So, text in to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. It's the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver or online at DunbarLumber.com. And use that inbox. Use that inbox and I will answer whatever questions. I'm, I'm hoping in segment two that you will help me guide the conversation. We'll talk about the Canucks. We'll talk about this weekend slate of back-to-back games. Segment two from 1230 to one, we'll do a mailbag segment. Whatever you want to talk about, I'm here to chat with you about the Vancouver Canucks. At 1 p.m., we'll be joined by former Vancouver Canucks and Toronto Maple Leafs general manager, Dave Nonis. Dave Nonis is a guest on the show today. He will join us to talk hockey, to talk Canucks, to talk management lessons at 1 p.m. And then at 1.30, we'll do the PDO report with Dmitry Filipovich, looking ahead at the next week of Canucks games and breaking them all down what to watch for, what sort of challenge each Canucks opponent presents. That'll be with Dmitry Filipovich. That's at 1.30. So that's our show today. That's our show today. And it's going to be an interesting one because it's a pretty interesting time around the team in my view. I know there's a lot of folks who are feeling a little, you know, not checked out, but disappointed with how this Canucks season has begun. The team is 7-10-3, as we know. They've blown a ton of leads over the course of the season. Multiple goal leads, often in the third period. It's been tough. It's been a little bit dispiriting for Canucks fans. And of course, as the Canucks players themselves wake up in Las Vegas today, they'll hit the ice for practice at about 1 p.m., so an hour from now, and and get a sweat on. (laughs) Get a sweat on to to make sure they put last night behind them prior to this back-to-back slate of games this weekend. The Canucks find themselves in 27th. 27th place in the NHL by point percentage. If you look at Vegas and see what the books have to say, including our friends at Play Now Sports, you will find that, you know, the <laughs> you will find that the fade is on, right? The Canucks currently are priced in at about plus 230 to make the Stanley Cup playoffs. Only Chicago, San Jose, Anaheim, and Arizona among Western Conference teams, have worse playoff odds. So Vegas thinks that Seattle's more likely to make the playoffs than the Canucks. Probably fair, considering Seattle's record at this point. They think the LA Kings are more likely to make the playoffs. They think the St. Louis Blues are more likely to play make the playoffs. And you know what? I do too. I do too. I look at this Canucks team and I see a lot of skill, right? Especially at the top end. I see a dynamic power play, a, a true fastball, a difference maker. In, in terms of what this team's capable of accomplishing. But I also see a defense that's incompatible with the act of winning in the NHL. 
I see a goaltending tandem that should be better and will be better, but is insufficient. And I see a forward group that struggles. Like, it's not a well-rounded forward group. There's some cutting edge to the forward group, but there's not enough roundedness in terms of defensive skill set up front. Bo Horvat and JT Miller, until the McKinnon game, have been counted on to play matchup minutes for this team. And Miller's actually fared pretty well in those minutes, dot, 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 provided he's on the wing, right? At center, JT Miller can't play at the top of your lineup. It just does not work. It does not work. And one thing I'm a little bit annoyed by, as I consider what this team has accomplished through 20 games, is the fact that every night it feels like the opposition's best players are the ones winning the game, right? It's a banner night for Jack Eichel. It's a banner night for McDavid. It's a banner night for Ovechkin. It's a banner night for whomever the opposition's star players are consistently against the Canucks. It feels way too often like this Canucks team is a foil, is just there to be the patsy in someone else's story, like the like the putties in, in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Hit them in the chest, get them on the PK, and they'll explode. And as I consider all of this, right, I I still can't discount a couple of key facts here. One, it's still early, and this team's not that far out of it, right? They probably have a one in three shot. Even Vegas's fade on them, plus 230. Like, plus 230 is not a massive underdog. We're not talking about, you know, Chattanooga playing Duke. (laughs) We're talking about... You know, a, a result that's well within the realm of possibility, about a one in three chance in terms of the implied probability, which closely matches what Dom LeCision's model, ding, gotta gotta get that, that mention in, implies about where they're likely to finish. There is still a chance for this team to turn it around, but personally, as I gauge this team, as I look through the underlying data, I don't see it. I don't see it. In fact, I see a team that's been a lot worse at five on five than I was expecting going into the season, right? Um, We're talking about a 46% expected goals rate. Uh, We're talking about a team that's been outshot at five on five by 80 over the course of 20 games. Uh, That's not good, right? We're talking about a team with a 47% control of shot attempts. And we're talking about a team that's been outscored at five on five. And even in getting outscored by five on five, it's only by one goal. That result is propped up falsely, a mirage, as a result of Vancouver's opportunistic finishing to this point in the season, right? Vancouver is shooting and converting at the second highest clip of shots of any team in the NHL at 5-on-5 to this point in the season. I think it's fourth overall, right? When this team shoots, they score at at a massive rate. Now... Some of that is skill. Some of that is, hey, you know what? JT Miller walking down on his downhill side on the power play. That's a really good shot. Bo Horvat, Bo Horvat with his new whippier stick and the chances that he's generating. Guess what? He's going to shoot in an elevated clip. Honestly, he's done that pretty consistently for the last three, four years. Elias Pettersson's a human time machine. He literally turns goaltenders back when he's on the ice to the days where they were five foot nine and smoking in between periods. Right? That, that's what he does. 
goaltenders make saves like they're playing in the 80s as opposed to being six foot four Finnish gentlemen who, who <laughs> um, you know, have all sorts of post-integration techniques and, and catch like they're Russell Martin. So there is an element to which I expect Vancouver above average finishing team. I don't, however, expect them to be an 11% finishing team over the course of the year. Like, just think about it this way. Do you expect Bo Horvat to score 60 goals like he's on pace for? Realistically, do you expect Bo Horvat to score 60 goals and JT Miller to score 40 and Elias Pettersson to score 40? Do you believe that the Canucks are going to get 140 goals out of these three players? Or do you think they're likely to come back to earth a little bit? Pretty easy, right? That's not that's not a controversial framing, right? Surely no one bet the over on 140.5 goals scored between Miller, Horvat, and Pedersen. No one's taking the over. And if you are, let me know in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber inbox. Um, you know, I, I, I'd be curious to hear your rationale. When that hits, and it will, it's inevitable. This team's not going to be the elite offensive four goals a game juggernaut that they've looked like. Like, even Vancouver's one seeming strength, their productivity, their ability to fill the net, to me looks soft. To me looks unsustainable, unrepeatable, unreal. A mirage. And while, to some extent, the same applies to the club's defensive play, like, I don't think this is a bottom two defensive team in the in the league. I think they're bad. I don't think they're good. I think they're a bottom 10 defensive team, but I don't expect them to lose a ton of 5-4 games over the over the balance of the season. What I think is going to happen is I think the Canucks are going to start playing. I've been saying this for a couple weeks, and I've, I've continued to be wrong, but I'm telling you this is coming. The unders are going to start to play, and the Canucks are going to find themselves on the wrong side of lower scoring games going forward here. And, and here's why. They don't have the baseline. They don't have the baseline to offset poor performance when things go against them, right? This is what a really good team has. A really good team has the ability to lean on what Canucks management might call structure, loaded, what I will call a a core of steel, an ability to control games at five on five, at even strength, right? A good team can fall back on that when, say, their star goaltender struggles for 20 games and still eke out 500-plus point percentage, right? They're not bottom five in the league. They're not treading water with Arizona and Columbus just because their goalie is not, you know, goes through a stretch where they're not particularly great. Good teams can overcome that. The Vancouver Canucks are not a good team. They cannot, right? The Canucks, despite not having that core of steel, even, even to this point, even to get to this point, it could have been worse except that their offensive guns have fired hot, have run hot, and have actually outperformed. They've actually been lucky to get to the point where they're just three points out of the playoffs and a significant fade in Vegas and a 33% odds of making the playoffs. They've actually been fortunate. Like, that's the thing you got to think about here. In looking at the Canucks, in thinking about where they are, in looking at the standings, in considering what comes next, the main point that I want to drive home to you is, is a lot of offensive luck a lot of good fortune, a lot of things that will not last have actually benefited this team to get them to this point where still Canucks fans are looking at this group and saying, this kind of sucks. 
Vancouver, we're smart enough in this market. We've watched enough really good hockey and we've watched enough bad hockey to know what we're seeing. We can get fooled, obviously, by really great goaltending or by a 99-point season or, or what have you. But for the most part, we know what it looks like when a team isn't transitioning the puck well, isn't generating enough zone time. Like We know what an effective fourth-line shift looks like. And you'll hear it in the building at Rogers Arena. Fourth line doesn't need to score. But if they have a heavy shift, if they spend a bunch of time in the offensive end, what happens? The crowd goes wild. This market knows what winning hockey looks like. We do. Now, sometimes sometimes we convince ourselves, because it's been a long time. It's been a long time since this team was meaningfully good. So we'll convince ourselves that what we're seeing is good enough. One thing I heard a lot during the Bruce Boudreaux run was, Drance, just let us have this. Just let us have this. Why are you being critical? It's fun. Well, I was being critical because I was worried that the organization might overreact to, to a run of form. I was being critical because I genuinely didn't believe what I was seeing. I thought the team was good, was fortunate. I didn't think that represented their true talent level. I didn't think that Boudreaux alone made this 100-plus point team on true talent. And, and honestly... Now we're talking about things like playoff races and should they ride Spencer Martin and, <laughs> you know, they get three points out. And I'm telling you right now, this team's worse than I thought it was. I came into this season thinking that this was a mid-90s point team in terms of their overall point percentage. Like, I thought true talent, they should be a mid-90s point team. To uh, de- grade that by 10, and not because of the points that they've accumulated, but because of the way they've played because of their inability to control things five on five, right? This has actually been worse than the results indicate. Pedersen, Horvat, Miller, some of this, some of these guys running hot in terms of their goal scoring. Ilya Mikheyev on, on pace for 20 goals. A lot of that, a lot of that is ephemeral. A lot of that is stuff that this team can't rely on. And while Demko playing better over the, over the latter three quarters of the season, which will happen, by the way, which will happen, uh, will will help offset the offensive regression. That's still coming. That's still coming, and that's a key thing to remember here. This isn't an offensive juggernaut that's like two defensive pieces away from, like, look at how they're scoring. They can score. It's not a problem. This is an average offensive team that's run hot, okay? And this is still a below-average defensive team, even when their goaltending stabilizes, normalizes, becomes reliable which it hasn't been to this point, particularly on the PK. Although how much of that is on the goalie and how much of that is on the fact that the Canucks get seamed four on five like a prom dress, like legitimately in a sewing machine. So as I look ahead to this weekend, as I think about the task at hand for the Canucks against Vegas and against San Jose, first of all, we talked about this at length. It's a hard back-to-back. San Jose might look like a a cupcake opponent in the second half. They're not. Game comes 22 hours after the game in Vegas. There's a lot of travel irregularity that impacts a team coming into San Jose. The curfew at the airport, which we discussed at nauseum, <laughs> at nauseum yesterday. And look, San Jose, they've got a Norris candidate defenseman playing at the absolute peak of his powers in net. They've got goaltending that's outperforming Vancouver's goaltending. To this point in the season, Tomash Hurdle and Timo Meyer can still do damage, particularly given that Vancouver's biggest issue, five on five anyway, honestly, has been at the top of their lineup, right? 
That's that's the other thing that's sort of disquieting here. Like, what what has been Vancouver's biggest issue? It's not like, oh, their third line can't compete, although depth is part of the problem. The issue's been that at the top of the lineup, the Canucks are getting torn asunder by opponents on a regular basis. That's the big issue. San Jose has the personnel to do that, particularly with the Canucks playing a second game just 22 hours after puck drop in Vegas on Saturday. Vegas on Saturday, the Canucks played Vegas. Uh, played played okay. They didn't play badly when they lost 5-4 on Monday. They, they, there's a world where they could have won that game. But Vegas is better. Vegas is better. They have a higher octane fastball. Uh, that top line is cooking. That's a cup contender. That's a real cup contender. And that's a measuring stick game. You know? That's a measuring stick game. It was a measuring stick game on Monday. It's a measuring stick game again when the Canucks visit Vegas on the road on Saturday night. Hockey night in Canada. It'll be fun. Honestly, it's a fun sports weekend, and it's a fun weekend for the Canucks, right? You've got the sun Saturday night game. Sunday morning, you've got Canada at the World Cup. You can watch football all day and then watch a Canucks game at 5. Be done with your sports watching day at 8. I mean, that's that's as good as it gets from from the perspective of someone not on this road trip and just looking forward to enjoying a day of sports watching on Sunday this is great. We're not going to learn anything about the Canucks in these games, but there's a real chance that they split or even get three points out of it, in my view. This team's defining quality ultimately is not. Is not. That they are hapless. It's not that they are so overtly, obviously bad. Okay. It's not. This team's defining quality is that they're talented enough and flawed enough at the same time to be maddeningly inconsistent. So one thing that Canucks players like to say about their team in, in talking about reasons for positivity and reasons they believe, they'll say things like, on any given night, if we play our game, we can beat anybody. And they're right. This, there's enough talent here that they can beat anybody. There's enough reason to believe that this should be an above-average shooting team that if you don't believe me that the offense is just overheated, well, first of all, check back in with me in, in eight weeks. <laughs> just like the Miller is a winger take. We'll, we'll see how that ages. But also, but also fair. This is a team with enough talent that they should convert at above-average rate. No, no question. There's enough talent here that they can beat Vegas on Saturday. There's enough talent here that they should overwhelm the Sharks on Sunday. They are materially better than the San Jose Sharks. Materially better. I, I might not show in the standings at the moment where, you know what, the Canucks have the same number of points, albeit with two games in hand, over San Jose, yay! The Canucks can and should come out of this with at least a split, and I won't be stunned in the least by three or four points. I won't be stunned in the least if this Canucks team reels off four or five, five of six, extends this seven, four, and one stretch that they're on over their last 12, another five, six games, creates a little bit more fool's gold. The core of steel isn't there. The ability to control isn't there, right? And that leaves them vulnerable to the slings and arrows of hockey luck which crop up over an 82 game season. And and that's really the that's really the key point. That's what that's why we focus the way we do in a negative sense, what people would call a negative sense, but what I would just say grappling with the reality of this team and talking about what needs to happen next, talking about what this club needs to get done in order to build that core of steel up. And this is sort of where my more extreme views 
come into play. And and my more extreme views in a hockey sense, in in a, in, in the context of pushing for this team to spend 18 months not rebuilding on the fly, not transitioning on the fly, not pecking away at it, but detonating, blowing it up with real focus and discipline. And here's 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 the thing. I don't think this team is short a third-pair defenseman or a fourth-pair defenseman or, or something like that, fourth-pair defenseman, a third-pair defenseman or a three-four defenseman, right? You think about 2010, right? You think about 2010, and the Canucks had Airhoff that offseason, and the next offseason they had Ham, Hughes, and Ballard, right? Ballard doesn't work. Ham, Hughes, and Airhoff are first-pair caliber defenders, right? Two of three ain't bad. <laughs> or maybe it is. Whatever. Your, your mileage may vary. That team was in the second round of the playoffs in 2009. They were in the second round of the playoffs for a second consecutive year in 2010. They had three Hall of Famers as the core pieces of that team, plus a future Selkie winner. When your team is set up that way, you can add players into the bottom end of your lineup and like better better build the team, better support those best players, and, and, and have real results as, like, as an outcome. You can level up fast. This team's been way out of the playoffs three years in a row. This team can't get out of the month of November with a, with a credible playoff shot, right? This group, they're a far cry from that. What they need is top of the lineup pieces. Like, they need pieces up above that can push guys like, you know, uh, Tyler. I like Tyler Myers as a defender just fine. If he's a 4-5 guy for you, you're, you're cooking. On this team, he's like a clear one. <laughs> he's like a clear one, too. So it's not that you need to, like, fix the third pair. In fact, Vancouver might lead the league in third pair defenders. <laughs> it's that you need to fix the top of the lineup stuff. Well, how do you do it? You need a ton of cap space. You need a ton of draft picks. You need a ton of tradable assets, something this organization doesn't have. Look at the forward group. Like, Bo Horvat's unsigned. Can you afford to commit more term and treasure to this core group? Can you? Really? But if you lose Horvat, you're going to spend years looking for a Horvat replacement. Years. And even with Horvat, considering how Miller's looked at center, you still need another center. So you're two centermen away? And at least two, not, not third pair, but first pair quality defenders away? Those are the hardest pieces to find. That's like a seven-year project. Unless you go about blowing this up. Unless you go about aggressively adding and grafting value into this organization in the form of cap space, younger players, draft picks. That's it. It's actually a simple equation at this point. And yet we argue about results and where the team's position. And oh, three points out. They still have a shot. Who cares? Who cares? Can this team do something this weekend that'll convince you that there's something that they're not? Or do you believe what you've seen over the last three years? That's the question. That's the question Canucks fans have to ask themselves. That's the question we're trying to ask ourselves when we come to you from the Kintech studio, where we come to you live. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, of course, is Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 500, 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. From the Kintech studio, that's where we're constantly asking about this, focused on what we know. Not what we need to learn over the course of the, over the course of this weekend. Hey, segment two, we're gonna do a mailbag. Solicit your feedback. Tell me I'm wrong. Bring in bring in some questions. We'll we'll get to them on the other side of the jump. You are listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.
Hello and welcome back to Canucks Talk, segment two in the hopper for the next 25 minutes. And then we'll have Dave Nonis at 1 p.m., Dmitry Filipovich joining us for the PDO report looking ahead to Vancouver's opponents this week at 1.30. Coming to you live, of course, as always, from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics is Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews, find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. All right, we're going to open up the mailbag. So if you'd like to get your question in, if you haven't already, though we've got lots of responses, lots of lots of pooled questions to get into, but if you want to try and sneak one in under the wire, you can get at us at 650-650. That's the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber at on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver or online at DunbarLumber.com. All right. I'm going to start with a question. That's coming in from Matt in Toronto. Boo. <laughs> Matt asks, Drance, do you see a scenario where Travis Dermott can play beside Quinn Hughes when he gets back? Their numbers together last year, though minimal, are wild. Thanks, dude. Keep your head down, stick on the ice. Hey, I appreciate that, Matt. Thanks. Very practical. Very practical advice. Keep my stick on the ice, unlike Danny Heatley who spent an entire career calling for the one-timer even when he was defending. Can Travis Dermott play with Quinn Hughes? Well, first of all, it'd be great to just see Travis Dermott back in a non-contact jersey working with the group, right? Clearly, the fact that he continues to work out in a non-contact jersey means he hasn't cleared protocol yet, right? Like, yeah, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't been cleared. And with head injuries, especially ones that occur so suddenly, right? Like, Travis Dermott was at practice and then he was being helped down the tunnel. And we haven't seen him since, except in a contact jersey, getting sort of light work in with the group. Um, troubling, right? It's just scary. Like, you just hate to see anybody go through it. So let's get Travis Dermott cleared before we get too ahead of ourselves in terms of where and with whom he should play in the Canucks lineup. All that said, I don't see Travis Dermott as a fit on a pair with Quinn Hughes. The fact that they have great numbers... It's very probably situational, right? Hughes, for example, always has great underlying data with with Tyler Myers because they only ever play together when the team is trailing. So their score effects at play, but also their deployment is so offensively calibrated that, you know, they're always starting in the offensive end. They're always playing with the best players. You're literally putting them out together to juice Vancouver's chances of creating a goal and their numbers reflected. It's not something you'd go to when it's tied because ultimately you want Hughes to have someone who's a little bit more defensively reliable. Now, Travis Dermott is defensively reliable, but he's a transitional defensive defenseman. He's not a dynamic offensive guy, and he's not a lockdown guy. He's kind of in that tweener third-pair mold. And what we've seen from Dermott over the course of his career as well is that he succeeds as a third pair defenseman, but you play him any higher and it don't work. It just doesn't work. And that's okay. Right? Like that's okay. A third pair defenseman at 1.5 million is a perfectly fine piece to have, particularly when they're versatile enough to play both sides, particularly when their ability in transition helps address probably your team's biggest single talent flaw, right? <laughs> the ability to just get moving north south. 
So this isn't criticism of Travis Dermott. This is just skepticism that he's capable of filling a first-pair role, right? That's that's what differentiates certain guys are third-pair guys who can move up, right? Like, this is one thing I always say. I often say things like, I, th- I see Travis, uh, Tyler Myers as a 4-5 or five defenseman. But I also see Tyler Myers as a guy who'd have a ton of value if you were able to surround him on a deeper defense core because in a pinch, if you need Tyler Myers to go up and play top pair minutes for 10 days, a playoff series, whatever, I don't think he hurts you. I don't think he hurts you. I just think if you're relying on it for 82, it's too big an ask. But he can do it. He can do it, particularly if you put him in on, on a winning team. You know, the, the comp that I'd go to is a guy like Josh Manson in Colorado, acquired to be a third pair guy, ends up playing in their top four throughout the playoffs or a guy like Eric Johnson, right? Like there is a space on a really good team for a guy like a Tyler Myers. If you slot him appropriately and part of slotting him appropriately is that in a pinch, he can move up. And that's also the difference between a guy like Myers or a guy like Stetcher who also can move up without killing you. And a guy like Travis Dermott, who to me is a pure third pair guy. Let's throw Luke Shen in there. Luke Shen's a guy who you can bump up the lineup if you got to. And it, it looks fine. There's also a particular calibration thing that makes it fine for a longer haul, so long as the partner that he's playing with is Quinn Hughes. Dermot, for me, not that guy. All right, here's another one. A guy who says that I never address his texts about my love affair, what he's calling my love affair with Brock Besser. Then he says he's, my, he's, he's his favorite player. Huge fan of his. Great guy. But simply put, he's terribly slow, most nights completely invisible, and perhaps not the sniper we thought he was going to be. It's time to trade Brock Besser. Now, we know that Besser's on this wild point streak, um, but a lot of that is ephemeral. You'll be shocked to hear it. I don't really believe that it's going to last. Brock Besser at the moment has a 90% IPP, individual point percentage. So, 90% 90% of the goals that the Canucks score with Besser on the ice, he's getting credit for a point on. Uh, includes four secondary assists and only five primary points. So while Besser's five-on-five production has been through the roof, a lot of that is cluster luck, noise, right? It overrates his contributions. I don't think that's a controversial opinion. All of that said, Besser's personal on-ice shooting clip, like his personal shooting clip, He's converting on 4% of shots, 4% of his shots at at five on five. So when Besser is shooting at the moment, NHL goaltenders are stopping (laughs) 0.960 of those shots. Every goaltender, so long as Besser is shooting at the moment, is basically Tim Thomas. Uh, That's not going to last. That's not going to last. Besser's lack of goal scoring to this point, luck-based. Now, all of that said, Besser's run of form, his production... His point streak at the moment, also luck-based. So it goes. But yeah, Besser's a fine shooter. In fact, he's one of the rare players in this league who can beat set NHL goaltenders. We haven't seen it yet. We know he had hand surgery. Um, I don't think that's affected it. I just think it's been cluster luck, I think, over the course of the season. You know, the the only thing that's going to stop Besser from scoring 30, in my view anyway, is durability, not, not... Bad luck, not a poor shot, not velocity, not anything like that. Besser can shoot it. Besser can rip it. Um, that's not my concern. And yeah, the speed thing, it's true. I mean, he's not a burner, but I don't I don't think he's as limited as Canucks fans like to pretend he is in terms of his, his speed game. Uh, he also does a lot well. He goes to the net hard, way harder than most of his teammates. He wins a ton of battles on the wall. He's developed as a playmaker. 
My only concern with Besser at the moment, to be honest with you, gentlemen, uh, gentlemen, and 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 ladies, and anybody else listening, um, I don't know why I said honestly. I was looking at our producers and just pretending I was talking to them. Um, the only reason for concern, in my view, is is Ben Besser's defensive play. Historically, not a poor defensive player. He's been really bad, really permissive to this point in the season. Some of that's probably team effects. Some of that probably is getting up to speed after a surgical procedure that required him to not work out for weeks at on end because the sweat posed an infection risk. Gross. But the defensive play for me, that's the far bigger concern than Besser's shooting form when he's converting on 4% of his 5-on-5 shots. Like, this is a 12% career shooter at 5-on-5. Uh, only a year removed from being a 13% conversion rate guy. Uh, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a problem with the shot. I think there's just you know a, a run of bad luck, and this is what goal scoring looks like. You know, you you want to think that a twenty goal scorer in the NHL scores every fourth game, but that's not how it works. They'll go twenty games without a goal, and then they'll score four and five. Like that's that's the nature of being someone who's not Matthews or Ovechkin or or McDavid in the best league in the world. Like goaltending by nature is a streaky sort of thing. All right, here's another one. Sitting here on November 25th, James and Van texts in, how many existing NHL contracts with specifics, please, would be harder to trade, i.e. require more enhancing value attached than the OEL contract? Thanks for listening. Uh, it's not a long list. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not a long list. And here's the other thing to keep in mind is the is the no movement clause, Right? Ekman Larson wanted to be in Vancouver. He wanted to be in the show. He wanted to see what it was like in a hockey market like this one. And he's not obligated to help the club trade him. So that's a key thing here. Like, that's a really vital thing to keep in mind is ultimately he sort of controls this. There is an element to which, you know, Oliver Ekman Larson's status is governed by himself, by his own choice, right? So how many deals would be harder to move? Um, you know, there's not a lot. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. There's not a lot. Uh, you've got maybe Jeff Skinner, although Skinner's had something of a glow up. He's got 9 million times five remaining. Um, you know, maybe Sergei Bobrovsky. Um, that might be it. That might be it. And what's frustrating about it isn't uh, it has nothing to do with Oliver Ekman Larson, who like for me he hasn't been good this year and he's falling off quickly, but he works hard for the most part, is my understanding. He uh, seems to be a good guy. I've I've enjoyed talking to him. I think he's been accountable. I think he's been present. Uh, I, I've enjoyed getting to know him a little bit and cover him. The problem for me is like you were one year away from Roussel Beagle. And Erickson all expiring, twelve million off the books. Like that was it. You just had to wait one more year. And this organization was too impatient to do it. I I it's just so frustrating. Like I, I honestly I honestly struggle to wrap my head around it. But that's not on Oliver. You know, that's not his fault. It's just the context through which that trade will always be viewed. It's a trade that was designed to help the team at least make the playoffs right off the hop, and it's failed on its own merits without even considering 
things like Dylan Gunther being good. That's tough. Really tough. And in the years to come, it's only going to get tougher as Ekman Larson gets older, as his form inevitably diminishes. Again, nothing to do with him, just to do with time. Undefeated, that undefeated force in pro sports. Tragic. Honestly, there's nothing short of tra- it's. It's nothing short of tragic that the Canucks retained management following the disaster that was 2021 and then made that trade and then belatedly made the change and then doubled down on a lineup that got hot for 57 games and is in the exact same situation now. It's so difficult to wrap your head around all of the mistakes of the last three years that have led us to this point. And and so, you know, one of our producers said to me during the break, they said, if Vancouver wins both these games over the weekend, the city's going to be into it. But I'm not going to change my tone. And this, this is why, like, we know what this is. We know what this, we knew as it was happening that these were errors. We can't be fooled by little, like, pyrite, like <laughs> fool's gold, literally. Right? It's, we can't be fooled by that again. Surely, surely we're not going to keep trying to kick the football. Right? Right, fellow Charlie Browns? I say this as a bald man. <laughs> surely we're not all going to keep trying to kick the football. All right. If Here's a here's an interesting one. If we are to believe that, that's, that PD is a Datsuk comparable, I'd, I'd, I'd slow my horses on that. Datsuk might be the best, like, the best defensive forwards the last 20 years. Datsuk, Fedorov, Bergeron. Okay, that's it. Like, that's the class of the best defensive forwards the past, I guess, 25 years in this sport. By the way, let's note, one guy's from Quebec and two Russians. So throw all your biases about who plays good defense out the window, huh? (laughs) Anyway, Pavel Datsuk is probably too lofty a comparable for Elias Pettersson. There were two or three seasons there where Datsuk put together the sorts of campaigns that we like see once in a generation, like almost never. They were so good. He was so good. Like 05 to 09, Pavel Datsuk was the best player in, in hockey. I know Crosby had the counting stats. I know Datsuk didn't win much hardware over that time other than the Selkie, but just like Bergeron, like at the end of the day, if you had to win a game with the fate of the world on the line against an, a team of aliens, okay, who'd come and it's like, the fate of the world is on the line. Do you take anyone ahead of Patrice Bergeron? Like, I don't know that I do if I need to win that game at this point. Like, I'm just like, ah, oh, man, like, end of the day, who do I really want to trust with the fate of my family and everyone else I know? Like, everything on the line. I mean, it, it, I think it would be Bergeron. That's who Dat, Datsuk was. I think the PD comparisons to Datsuk, stylistic, I get it. Lefties, super creative, win a ton of battles without being big, uncanny anticipation, great on ice awareness, process the game like a supercomputer. Like, I see it. I see it. But I just think Datsuk was at such a level that we need to be really careful with that. Nonetheless, one thing I do think about this team that, that I think is interesting is whether you view Miller as a center or a winger, like whether you view Miller as a winger or you're wrong, <laughs> uh, Miller, Horvat, and Pete Pedersen all are lefties who are probably best suited to a more offensive role. 
Fair to say. That means that in combination, they are less than the sum of their parts. They're all great players individually, but one, two, three down the middle of your lineup, they don't accomplish as much as they might. Were there to be a little bit more uh, of a distinction between them in terms of their styles and skill sets and relative strengths? What type of center should the Canucks go after? How about a really good defensive player who's right-handed? And I'm not talking about a Brandon Sutter. Like, ideally, you would look for someone who can, you know, more in that Horvat-ish mold. Someone who can, you know, provide a little more offense. Like a right-handed Nick Bonino type. I don't know. There's not a lot. It's hard to find centermen. Really hard. But that would be, if I could draw it up in a lab, like, or design it in a lab, what would the Canucks' ideal additional centerman be? Be like a 20-goal scoring, 15-assist, right-handed centerman capable of winning battles. That's it. That would be the piece. So, anyway, interesting question for sure. Mailbag nerd question. How do players with glasses operate in the NHL? For example, I noticed JT Miller wearing glasses. I've also noticed that. He looks like an accountant. I would assume contacts would be dangerous. Do they get prescription visors or do they just squint? Definitely contacts are worn. Definitely contacts are worn. This this probably, I should probably go ask some guys who I know wear glasses off the ice and get more detail on that. But that's a good topic to unpack further later. Here's a question from Mike in West Kelowna. Why the heck wouldn't they just realize their situation and try to set themselves up in the draft? It would show their complete lack of seeing the big picture. Hashtag Bedard. Who's playing, of course, at the Langley Event Center over the course of this weekend on a West Coast trip with Regina of the WHL. It's not just Bedard, right? That's the thing. Tanking or weakening this team for the purpose of getting a, a, a maximum value draft pick, it's not about Bedard. It's about the fact that there are seven or eight guys that you would be overjoyed to get at the top of this draft class. Likewise, the next year, it's not about Macklin Celebrini, another Vancouver-based product who's entering the 2024 draft, will enter the 2024 draft class as a, you know, presumptive frontrunner to be first overall. Two consecutive Vancouver-based prospects going at the top of the draft, and this team's all in for what? For what? Right? Like, but, but again... The, the presence of Bedard and Celebrini, it's not about landing Bedard or Celebrini. You, you can't guarantee it. Like, even if the Canucks were to finish where they are at in the standings right now, at the end of the year, which they won't, we're looking at a 7.5% chance at landing Bedard from the 27th overall spot in the NHL standings. Not going to happen, right? Like, it's not good odds. It's not close to good enough odds. You cannot be bad intentionally with only one target in mind. Yes, sure, you're loading your odds at getting that player, but you can't be disappointed when the far more likely outcome occurs and you end up drafting 8th, 5th, 4th, right? This team doesn't win draft lotteries anyway. <laughs> Who are we kidding? You don't, you don't weaken your team for the purpose of upping your draft pick with Bedard in mind. Bedard, Celebrini, the presence of Vancouver, top Vancouver-based talent in the draft classes – that's just cover like that's just something you can use to market making the right decision for the long-term health of your franchise that's it you're doing it hoping you get some transformative talent for sure but that transformative talent might be named leo carlson it might be named zach benson 
It might be named Brandon Yeager. You cannot count on getting the top player in the draft. Why wouldn't the Canucks do it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, short-term playoff revenue, a business model built around it. Fact is, is at this point, if you're not able or willing to rebuild this team, uh, you know, I don't know that you can afford to compete in this league. Just is what it is. Just is what it is. Here's a here's a statement. If this team comes out with three or four from this upcoming weekend, then they have built a good team. No, that's not true. They're not a good team, and they won 106 points, six-point pace over 57 games. They won 35 of 57, and I wasn't convinced. Do you think three or four over a weekend against San Jose and Vegas will convince me? What if they get outshot 50 to 20? But Spencer Martin stands on his head, and then th- then they get outshot again, 30-15 in San Jose. But Demko answers back. That could happen. Power play scores four, and the goaltending's great, and they win both games. That means they're a good team? Stop it. Stop it. We have to have a longer view than that. Drance, was Tyler Mott just covering so many flaws in this team they flew well with him last year, says Mike from Thunder Bay. I, You know, I wish we could bottle the Highmore, Lamico, Mott line and their impact. They were great. They were great. Bruce Boudreaux really did pull that out of thin air. And it completely changed what this team was able to do in terms of a third line. I wonder if that's sort of part of what he's trying to accomplish now with Sheldon Dries, who's winning a ton of draws and is eighth among Canucks forwards by... Um, Face off, or sorry, by by points, by points, right? He's eighth among all Canucks forwards by points. Um, Boudreaux doesn't seem to have a lot of vets that he really trusts, and Boudreaux's not a play the kids coach. Boudreaux likes his veteran guys. Uh, there's a lot of coaches like that. Clearly, with success of Lamacor, <laughs> Lamacor, Matt Lamaco, Highmore, uh, they did sort of find something that gave them that third line that could be relied on. Uh, Boudreaux sort of has it with that Amon, Joshua, and a rotating guy group, but not. it's not the same. That, that group's not been nearly as effective, frankly, even though I like the players more individually than what they got out of Mott, Highmore, and Lamico. Um, yeah, do they miss Tyler Mott? Uh, arguably, they do. Tyler Mott can drive a bottom, a fourth, a fourth line, maybe a third line. He can literally drive that line. That's definitely a piece that they don't have at the moment. And, and that they could use. Um, all right. Lots of people saying Besser sucks and saying I should stop. <laughs> uh, it's tough. It's tough to do this as one person because I don't get the I don't get the other person talking to, to go through and find more. All right. Here. Here. Let's go one more. Do you foresee the Canucks taking more advantage of the ECHL for development? How do we find that extra two or five percent development edge? Well, yeah. OK, this is this is actually a good place to end. One thing that the Rutherford-Alvin axis has built in terms of their rebuild-on-the-fly thing is that they're going to do a better job developing players. And yet, when you look at the usage of Danila Klimovich, a healthy scratch again today for the fourth straight time, Niels, uh, sorry, not Niels Amon, Niels Hoaglander in and out of the lineup. Press box, first line, fourth line, third line. When you look at Vasily Podkolzin, similarly unpredictable in terms of their usage. Are we seeing... Are we seeing a development model that makes more sense? Subtly, I think, in in some ways we are. The AHL team's a lot younger than it was last season. 
and Colleton is really playing the kids. Now, I don't know how many other options they had. Uh, certainly, the, it would be convenient. It would be convenient that this team that uh, prioritized moving Jason Dickinson, a, a deal that had far more salary than cap benefit, uh, that's being said to be shopping Tyler Myers before his bonus kicks in, uh, it would certainly be convenient that that team wanted to reduce AHL salary, but the kids are playing down there. I, I just don't know that we're seeing something that looks more efficient than what the other teams are doing in the league yet. Yet. I suppose that's one that'll take more time. I like some of the moves made there, but uh, yeah, will we see a more ECHL variation? I think we're already seeing the club instill a double A sort of development system at the AHL level with that Nielsen Chase Waters crowd, that group they're developing of high scoring WHL players on those AHL only deals. Could that expand? Hopefully it does. I, I do think that that can provide a durable edge in the years ahead, but that frankly is not a big part of the Pittsburgh model, not nearly as big a part as the Wilkes bear portion, which this group is trying to emulate with, you know, varying degrees of early return success. All right. We'll be back for segment three with former Canucks general manager, Dave Nonis. You are listening to Canucks talk on Sportsnet 650. Hello and welcome back to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. I am Thomas Drance, Jamie Dodd. Not with us today, he'll be back next week. Of course, I am coming to you for Canucks Talk from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics is Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews, find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Also, I want to tell you about how Sportsnet 650 is partnered with Match Eatery and Public House for Sportsnet 650 Sunday at Cascades Casino in Delta. Join Bick, Randeep, and the SN650 squad on Sunday, December 4th from 1 to 5 p.m. for all of your marquee matchups. Match Eatery and Public House offers the social traditions of a neighborhood pub with the high energy of a sports bar. Stop by for a chance to win a smart speaker, grab some Sportsnet 650 swag, and talk sports with Randeep and Bick. Plus, we'll be giving away a pair of Canucks tickets and a pair of tickets to the Seahawks game on December 11th. Excuse me, December 11th. So... Uh, yeah, at the new Cascades Casino next to the Massey Tunnel. Join us next Sunday. All right. We're going to welcome to the program, uh, fr hailing from Burnaby, British Columbia, originally former general manager for the Vancouver Canucks and the Toronto Maple Leafs over a lengthy career in NHL hockey operations. We're joined now by Dave Nonis. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. You know, Dave, I'm curious. Uh, I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about your path into hockey operations for our audience as a Vancouver kid. I don't know how many people are aware of this, but you actually started in the, in the Pat Quinn era Canucks front office. And, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe you started in ticket sales. Is that right? I did ticket sales and team services. So when we were <laughs> out on the road, I was trying to pedal tickets and we were on the road. It was with the team. So wow. it was kind of a job, job that Pat created for me. And I was all, be forever grateful to him and, and Brian for giving me a chance. What do you remember about those days uh, between you, Brian, George, uh, Pat, obviously a pretty lengthy 
a development tree coming out of that front office at the time. What was the dynamic like working under Pat? Uh, what do you remember most fondly and most and most negatively about those days? <laughs> really, nothing really negative, but I can tell you <laughs> think, things have really changed since you know since mm. that. You know, those days we had a small office on Renfrew Street that probably I don't know maybe held fifteen twenty people, and that was it. Uh, so we were, you know, we were close. You saw everybody every day. You know, Pat was very accessible. Uh, you know, he was uh, he was w- one of the fondest memories of my career, uh, or several of them relate back to Pat because he was such a an honest, giving guy, uh, and he he taught all of us, Brian uh, and George McPhee, myself, a lot of a lot of things uh, about the game, and more importantly, what how to treat people. Pat was was one of the best. And making everyone in the organization feel wanted, and and everyone wanted to work for him. That's also why his players played so hard for him. Mm. What's interesting is you. So you get a little bit more formally into hockey operations in 1999, right? Right before that season, and obviously it's a transitional moment for the organization, going from one ownership group to the other. Uh, Pat had had leaves the organization uh, at some point that season in the first couple of months, anyway. And, and and really things begin to wait. Sorry, I've got that wrong. Pat had left the year before. Excuse me, but nonetheless. So Brian's relatively early. You guys have just drafted the Twins. It's a transitional moment for the organization. What do you remember about those years? And how conscious were you and Brian at the time of this being a rebuilding project? Even though obviously we know what what Brendan Todd and and Marcus ended up accomplishing. Yeah, you know what? We we it was pretty clear to us early on that the team was you know, in transition is a good way of putting it. You know, we really didn't have a choice but to turn the page on some of the older players. Not that they weren't good people or you know had some positive impact on the team, but uh, the team had to turn over. And mm-hmm. the three guys that you mentioned uh, had to be given bigger roles. Ultimately, the Twins had to be given bigger roles. Uh, moving Pavel Burry out, who. Uh, didn't want to be in Vancouver anymore. Right. We had to make a deal there that brought back some pieces that were going to be important. And on the biggest piece there, obviously, was Ed Jovanovski. You know, and so at, after that, we were looking at getting younger, getting deeper, and having those players kind of blossom. And, you know, those three forwards took a, a pretty big step forward, you know, <laughs> in a short amount of time to give the team a chance to get out of you know, non-playoff situations into a pretty long string of being competitive. Yeah, so, sorry, so 1998-99 is your first season as Director of Hockey Operations with the Canucks. So that is one of the most uh, turmoil-filled seasons, right? Because you've got the Beret holdout, you've got um, the the Hockey Night in Canada game where, where the coach pulls the goalie with 10 minutes to go and then says he didn't have any other options to score goals since Beret was holding out, uh, ends with the Twins being drafted. So... What what do you remember about how Brian managed crises on eighteen different fronts over the course of that first year? Yeah, you, you put it pretty well, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it uh, it's very exciting going back home and working for your hometown team. But I have to tell you, right when we first got there, you quickly said, "What did we get ourselves into?" Because there was a lot of issues that we had to deal with. You know, Pavel was a big one, and uh, you know, I'd been around Pavel. Uh, my first stint with Vancouver before I went mm. to uh, work at the league office. And, um, you know, I knew what a great player he was, and I was really looking forward to being back there and seeing what we could do with him. But obviously that wasn't to be. So, you know, he had to move on. We had uh, some conflicts with our coach. You kind of made you know, in reference to it with Mike, uh, you know, t- trying to 
assert his will, I guess, uh, into how we should be building the team and what we needed. So that was an issue. You know, we had issues at the gate. There was, you know, we had a lot of issues that had to be cleared up and uh, it, it took more than a year, but we got on the right track. You know, I think once we moved Pavel, I ended up making a coaching change not too long uh, into into our tenure there, and then things started to move forward and progress pretty nicely. Brian likes to say that he lost the Pavel trade. Do you remember, I think that's probably uh, too critical of himself, to be totally honest with you, but when you think about that return, how, how crucial was it to add to the surplus of defensemen? Because looking through, you know, what adding Jovo to a group that already had um, Brian McCabe and Adrian Acoin and the, and Oland obviously, and what you guys were able to end up doing in future deals to further flesh out those West Coast Express era teams, um, was there a conscious effort to get a defenseman in particular to build out that surplus? There was. I mean, if if we could have, if there was a better package that didn't include a, a defenseman, we would have done it. But. Mm-hmm. If, you know, all things being equal, we wanted to try to get a, get a defenseman. And, and you know, Jovo's start in Florida was mixed. Um, you know, he, he showed some real promise, and everyone knew what kind of talent he was. But, uh, you know, we thought that if we got him and, and we could bring him along, that he could turn into a into a top defenseman. And, and you know, once he settled down a little bit uh, in his play, I think he, he really did. He became a, a pretty popular guy in Vancouver and uh, how he played and how hard he played. Uh, so adding him to the roster was pretty important. And, and you know, there were other pieces uh, to that deal, but, you know, he was clearly the, the centerpiece of it. And, you know, and Brian's, you know, right, not to, to knock on Jovo, but usually the team that gets the, the best player uh, wins the trade. And you know, no doubt that Pavel Burry is one of the best players in the game at that point, but uh, the fact is he wasn't going to play there anymore and, and we needed to improve our club. Sometimes it seems in hockey you have to lose a trade to win a trade, particularly uh, that's particularly true for teams in transition. Um, how do you remember the market responding to some of those lean years before Brendan, Todd, and Marcus sort of reignited the imagination of the fan base here? Was it a difficult spot to rebuild? Do you think it would still be a difficult spot? To rebuild in. Well, I still think the fans of Vancouver are some of the best in you know, in the game, um, but they had become tired, and and you know there was there were empty seats in that building, and there was, there was reasons for it. You know, I think the the losing was difficult. The style of play a little bit was mm. not what they wanted to see. You know, we wanted to open it up and and actually entertain people a little bit as well as win hockey games, and I think that was an important part of bringing the fan base back, but. I still believe that's one of the best markets in the game. Um, and I, I think you can rebuild in that market. I think the fans understand it as long as you're, you're able to tell them why and how and, and right. you know, paint a bit of a roadmap for them because there, there's, a, there's a difference between a rebuilding in a, I'll call it a non-traditional market where people only look at wins and losses. I don't understand uh, other parts of going to the game. Vancouver's not that market. Vancouver's a market where people do understand, and if mm-hmm. you do paint the picture for them and you're honest, I think that they'll accept it. Dave, when you were general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, so from 0405 through to 06, 0708, excuse me, um, pretty significant period of change for the league when you consider 
um, what your f- first year is the is the first year with the hard cap. <laughs> what what do you yeah. rem- what do you remember about how quickly the business changed and how quickly the logic uh, of how you had to operate in a hard cap system um, altered some of the conversations you were having with your compatriots, whether it trade calls or uh, conversations with agents, but also your thinking about what team building had to include. Yeah, it took a while um, to actually understand, and I say that it took a while for the whole league to understand how to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because when we when we left the the no cap era, we were playing against teams that had had power plays that had a higher you know cap hit than our whole team, and uh, so you know there was a, a lot of change, and then there, there was also an opportunity for some players to hit the home run, so to speak, and, and that you couldn't afford to keep them. So the decisions you had to make were not just hockey-related, but they were business-related as well. And, you know, we talked about the player already. I, I would have loved to have kept Ed Jovanovski, mm. uh, one of my favorite, you know, players and, and people that I ever I ever managed. But it wasn't going to happen, not not with the, the contract that I knew he was going to get. And if we did that, we couldn't have kept him. We could have kept other players. We could have. We would have lost players that would have helped us grow. So, those are the things you started to look at. It was not just a, a talent uh, evaluation. It was a, it was a cap evaluation, and it was also um, getting players to grow at the same pace at, at around the same age. Because, as you know, you know players get better. They get paid more, mm-hmm. and you, you, if you can get them kind of in the same band, maybe between four and five years apart. Uh, the teams right now that have figured it out have been able to to uh, keep their core group together and for for ex- an extended period of time while that window is open and they you know they build around it. We all had to learn how to do that. And it was if you look back at some of the deals that were made around the league. Uh, uh, some of them you shake your head at, and some you say that guy got it a little early. He understood and he made some moves that you know created cap space and allowed them to to build their team effectively. Yeah, in- interesting. And and you note the impact of cost certainty in the game today, particularly as you team build around a core. Um, how do you view today, like the concept of, of bridge contract savings? Do you have to be really careful in making some of those bridge type bets, particularly if you're not really going for it with a shot at, at winning the cup in, in the league today? Uh, I believe you do have to be careful. I mean, there's two schools of thought, um, you know, Again, we'll go back to early in my career. Bridge deals didn't really exist. Right. Either the player took his qualifying offer <laughs> or you signed him to a multi-year deal based upon what that qualifying offer would have been when he had no rights. And he projected, you know, if he scores 20 goals, this is what he's going to get in arbitration. That's how you build deals. Now that's not how you build deals. You're seeing teams that are going out, you know, seven or eight years for players coming out of entry level. And they're making $8 million really with with no stats to back it up but the teams are looking at those players and saying if the you know trajectory continues if the play improves if the percentage has improved over the last two or three years that seven or eight million dollars could be a bargain for us and again the teams that are hedging their bets on, on those deals if they hit it they're correct if they don't hit it and it's a mistake you have a contract you can't move mm-hmm. it's such a fascinating Dynamic, you also went through, as general manager, another transition, uh, organizationally speaking, uh, moving from the Orca Bay era uh, to the Aquilini era. What do you recall of 
you know, obviously we know what happens when you make the Luongo trade, right? And this team becomes a defensive powerhouse, um, you know, a, a totally different style of team than perhaps it had been when you were assistant general manager or director of hockey ops under Brian. Um, what, what do you recall about the pressure uh, once ownership changed to make the playoffs on an annual basis? Well, I, I think when you have owners that are in town, you know, that mm. live in your, in the city, I think there's always going to be a little bit more contact. Um, you know, the John McCaw, uh, I, I had contact with him, but not on a regular basis. And, you know, once you have an owner an ownership group that's in town, you're going to have, you're going to have that. And, and it was something that I, I dealt with, but I, I didn't dwell on it. I don't think it impacted any deals I made or did not make. You know, I think you have to put the, you know, the, the good of the team ahead of, of anything that you do or else you're not going to ever be successful. So, you know, we, when we look to move, uh, and Louis is a good example. When, when I wanted to change our team, wasn't any knock or disrespect on Dan Cloutier, who I, again, another player that I think gave us everything he had. But I felt that for us to take another step and turn into a team that didn't just make the playoffs but that could challenge, we needed a league goaltending. And, you know, that was a, a guy that I tried to get for a long time. Uh, and just so happened when Todd, you know, indicated that he would prefer to play elsewhere, it just matched up nicely uh, being able to get Louie in. And so the deals that we made or the steps that we made, yes, maybe there was more contact um, with local ownership, but you always have to make those, those moves or decisions based upon what's right or wrong for the team. Dave, I don't know how closely you're paying attention to what's going on around the league at the moment, but I'd imagine, given your career, very closely. <laughs> um, what what are you seeing out of this current iteration of the Vancouver Canucks? Well, obviously they they don't have any problem scoring goals. Mm. Um, you know that's that's one of the strengths of the team. I, I've watched, I haven't seen all their games, but I probably have seen at least ten of them, uh, if not more. And, you know, they have a great deal of offensive ability. Um, but as you know, and you follow it closer than I do now, you know, part of winning games and, and being really successful in the league today is keeping the puck out of your net. And you know, having a strong penalty kill, having a strong, you know, goals against five on five. And, you know, uh, I, I played for a coach that had the, the line that he drilled into us, which was, you know, offense wins games and defense wins championships. And, I think that's that's true. I think you could play an exciting, upbeat brand of hockey, but I think you have to have uh, a real commitment to play strong uh, team defense, and you have to be hard to play against. So I think from what I've seen of Vancouver this year, they have had some difficulty in that area. It, uh, I think they've been better of late. Um, I've seen a few of their last five games, and I think they've competed and played a you know more sound style. And, and I know Bruce is doing his best and his staff to try to tighten things up so it's not like they haven't recognized their shortcomings but if I have to look at them and say what you know, what do they need to do that's an area that clearly has to be built upon do you I mean how hard is it to defend or rebuild a defense in a league where everybody's defense is more focused on moving the puck these days like how how, how intractable is that issue in your view well, I think moving the puck is still really important. When I say being hard to play against, it's you know, it's the problem is getting the players that that you're mm -hmm. talking about or that we're talking about that can do both. Uh, they're hard to get. Right. You know, you're not going to just pick them up in the off season. You're not going to 
you know, they're hard to trade for. You're not going to get a Sergeyev or, or a Headman or, you know, those types of guys that are clearly hard to play against but can you know, can carry the mail and make great passes. Um, so that's the problem you have is, you know, if you see a shortcoming on your team these days, and this is in Vancouver, it's every team that has, has some holes, to say we're going to go out and fix that, you know, by, you know, via trade or we're going to, we're going to sign that player at free agency. Very difficult to do. Either there's not very many of them available, and if there is in free agency, you're competing against 31 other teams. Uh, and in a trade, teams don't want to move those type of players unless they have to, unless they can't sign them or unless they have to really shake up their club. But moving top four defensemen or even above top two defensemen is almost unheard of during the season these days. Dave, thanks so much for your time. I, I got to ask you one more, lest I hear about it from the inbox and from everyone listening on Twitter. <laughs> so, uh, stories, legends, uh, perhaps apocryphal, get told in this market, and the story of of you at the final trade deadline that you worked as Canucks general manager as a steward who held tight to key assets refusing to bend and trade for Brad Richards and the question of whether or not that ended up cost, costing you your job lingers large in the imaginations of this fan base. Clear it up for us. Tell us the story. So I, all I'm going to say there is, as I said earlier on, you have to make decisions that are the best for the team, not the best for yourself. Mm. And if, and if you do, it's, it's uh, you're going to hurt the franchise. Every team I've ever worked for um, or even consulted for, I think that's the principle you have to, you have to, you know, build upon, which is do what's right for, for the team going forward. I, you know, the, the team that went on in Vancouver after I left, uh, I was, I was proud of them. I was glad that they were all there and I would watch them, uh, you know, pretty much every night because, I, uh, I, I had a, I felt I had a big part of putting them there and, and I enjoyed them. So, uh, that's all I'll say there. But again, I, I've, I've always wanted to do what's right for any club I've worked for. Dave, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. All right, thank you. Take care. That's Dave Nonis joining us on Canucks Talk. You're listening to Sportsnet 650. Come back, stay with us. Other side of the break, we will do the PDO report with Dmitry Filipovich and look ahead to this week. Coming up in Canucks hockey, you're listening to Sportsnet 650. Nothing like the super stressful fourth segment comeback music to get me ready for my weekend to begin. All right, you're back. It's Canucks Talk. I'm Thomas Drance. I'm going to be joined by Dmitry Filipovich shortly. We'll do the PDO report, discuss, and preview the Canucks week ahead, but let's pay some bills first off. Canucks Talk is brought to you, I want to remind you, by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, our faithful sponsors. They're great they support a long-term vision for the Canucks, but also for your team, which is why they are a Kubota all-star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com for more. Of course, I'm coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics is Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. You know I like my stats. Those are some impressive ones. Find your perfect fit at Kintec. Net. And of course, if you want to ask Dimitri anything, if you want to ask me anything, feedback, suggestions, errors and omissions, what have you, get at us, 650-650, that's the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver 
or online at DunburLumber.com. One day I'll say it correctly, I promise you. All right. <laughs> Dmitry Filipovich, trying not to laugh at my pronunciation of Dunbar Lumber. How are you, my friend? I'm so good. So much better after watching you do those reads. You're you're the first guest who's ever brought me a coffee. Yeah. Well, by the way, so you're now my favorite guest. You deserve it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, you're, you're putting in an extra shift because you're going to be on my show after this That's as well. That's true. Yeah. I'm going to stick around. We'll do an hour PDO cast mailbag with Dimitri and I. So stay tuned with us. Another hour of trance. Don't change your radio dial. All right. So the PDO report is a segment in which Dimitri and I discuss, and usually with Jamie too, mm-hmm. discuss the Canucks schedule upcoming. However, this week, Vancouver's first opponent, the Vegas Golden Knights, is one we previewed less than a week ago. Canucks played them on Monday, lost 5-4. Uh, was that matchup typical for Vegas? Is the Jack Eichel line just picking their teeth with everybody? They really are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's been a bit of a tale of two seasons for them in terms of the home road splits because at home, they get to really just do whatever they want in terms right. of that deployment. So they really get to, get to key in on your weakness with that line. Yikes. On the road, it's a bit, a bit trickier for them, and we saw that. But I think, I think our preview last week that we did on the Golden Knights – wound up being pretty true to form based on mm. what we saw in that game. And I think it carries over to what we should expect from the second matchup as well. I think just to linger on them, because we will sure. we will yada yada the rest of this, yeah. but um, one thing I think I was surprised about seeing the Golden Knights again, team I've watched a lot because I was in the bubble, right? I, I mean, this is a team I've watched live a lot. And I think the impression that I was surprised by watching Jack Eichel keep that game on a string, mm-hmm. even though he doesn't look quite as physically assertive as he used to, in Buffalo, um, that line, the formation of that Stevenson Stone Eichel line, and the fact that it allows them to put the misfits together as a second line, yeah. feels like a championship gear they didn't have. It did. It unlocked a lot for them, and I think also, you know, that that's an interesting point you make about Eichel. He's probably not to where he was in that one peak Saber season mm-hmm. where he scored easily his career high in goals or whatever it was yeah. that one year. He's getting there. I think he's ramping up. And I think he unlocks so much for them in terms of the areas on the ice he's able to personally get to, where they just didn't really have players who were like much more um, kind of on the peripheries and on the boundary and getting shots from from weak areas in the offensive zone. He's able to slice and dice and get to wherever he wants on the inside. And they don't really have a, any other players like that that right. can consistently do so. Chandler Stevenson can do so in transition with his speed. But when the game slows down and you pack the paint, he can't really... He doesn't have the skill to necessarily get in there himself. It actually felt like Eichel's lack of just being this, like, alpha dominant physical specimen Mm -hmm. almost has unlocked him needing to be a bit more cerebral about generating offense. And I don't think it's a bad thing. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing for him. And I think he needs to if he's going to be playing with Mark Stone because to play off of him, there's such, like... In terms of their physicality, they're such different players. Romark still sure. is purely cerebral, and he just can't hit that gear that both Stevens and Eichel can physically. But seeing him kind of play off of him, I'm sure he's picking up all sorts of different tricks off the puck as well, yeah. playing with him. They're going to make him so much better moving forward. Yeah, I, I was, I was, um, you know, I, I used to watch Eichel and think, this is the closest we've got to Lemieux. Yeah. He's not Lemieux. No one ever will be, but he's the closest we've got now. And, uh, you know, it, it looked more like a, a Jumbo Joe tribute at Rogers Arena on Monday, and I don't think it was a bad look on him. As a fan of hockey, are you happy with how that trade turned out of all the possible yes. scenarios that could have happened? I, I feel like I feel it. like it worked out well for everyone. I think I think there's no one who should be unhappy about it. Did you see Alex Tuck's Sabres suit? Did you see that? I did, yeah. It was so sick. Yeah, he seems to really enjoy playing for that he's team, a perfect, He's a perfect Buffalo Sabre. Yeah. I don't know. There's also something about him and Tage Thompson 
um, on the same line that just like brings me joy. Yeah. They're well, immense lads who move quick. It's great. I guess the only, do you think maybe the flames are potentially slightly kicking themselves for not getting involved in that? I think the Canucks should be kicking themselves. I think everyone should be kicking right. themselves. Like, you know, um, I, the thing is, is like at least Buffalo mined a really good player in Alex Tuck. Yeah. But I mean, who would have been worse? Like, you know, what, what's the, what, what would the Canucks equivalent have been? It would have been something like Miller, uh, Pod Colson, and I don't know, X piece, but how old well, is Jack, first, Jack right? Eichel's 26, 25? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're going Jack Eichel, Bo Horvat, Elias Pettersson down the middle for the next five years locked in. For the next 25 games while Bo Horvat's still there. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but if you deal Miller. Yes. Yeah. I mean. Of course, yeah, it opened. Well, but then you have to factor in the Eichel contract as well. Sure. But I'm. I'm yeah. You, you do that because you you know don't make other were the connects like actually like strongly linked to them at any point no though? they were strongly oh, opposed they right. never got involved yeah, yeah, yeah. but they should have my point do is do you think they were they worried should've. about the medicals or just making the pieces fit i, I just don't think they had time for the play right. i just don't think yeah, they yeah. regarded him as a priority ad but i think he should have been a priority ad for everybody clearly yes you know yeah he looks good okay moving on the canucks face on sunday 22 hours after they play the vegas golden knights and and I bring this up every five minutes. Unable, likely, to fly from Vegas to San Jose. They'll probably have to bust down from San Francisco. So it's going to be a late night after three days in Vegas. Mm. And then they play 22-hour turnaround, the San Jose Sharks. Canucks are better than the Sharks. But by a lot? No. Well, <laughs> it yes. dep- depends on what version of the Sharks you get. Here's my question for you. Uh, okay. This might not necessarily impact the answer to that. How do you? It is a back to back, right? As you as you said, it's back to back. How are the Canucks gonna choose their goalies? Play I would bet. Two? I would bet they go with Martin in Vegas because Demko lost to Vegas. Right. And you know I should have done a whole bit on this. That actually. is such a bad reason to make that choice. Well, Demko lost to uh, Vegas on he Monday. Has, he has no career success against Vegas. <laughs> and uh, Martin beat the Avs on, on right. Wednesday. Right. I, I mean, I, I would guess it's that simple or Tuesday. I would guess it's that simple. Maybe, you know, here's the thing for me about this is I think Demko has earned and deserves like that usual starter success, uh, starter respect. Yeah. And usually you give your starter the chance to bounce back. Hmm. But I just feel like there's enough doubt about Demko's overall performance internally, clearly, because they gave Spencer Martin the Colorado start that I would expect Martin to get first up now sorry for wrestling the host chair away from you no, i'm gonna ask you another like question it. i'm just so used to hosting podcasts yeah, okay. and radio shows if you were coaching a team like the canucks or any team just in general your philosophy how would that how would that be manifested in terms of do you ask your starter which of the back-to-back he wants to play or are you giving him the team you deem the tougher matchup i, I just listen to the or are you trying coach. to bank the two points by playing him against the worst team i, I mean i don't I, I'm completely agnostic about it. You don't care. I yeah. don't care at all. I, I'm just asking. If there's a game theory, I don't think there's any sort of value either way. It's probably the no, same. But. I, I mean, I suppose the the logic, if you're a team that's clearly inferior to your first opponent, is to make sure you get the two. Take your best shot against the weaker opponent, mm-hmm. I think would be the best yeah. like point maximization approach. But I don't care about that, particularly because for the Canucks, in my view anyway... The task at hand is not maximize your points. It's do everything you can to get Demko back on track as fast as possible. Yes. Everything else is noise to me. Yep. It doesn't matter. So I, I, my inclination would be play him against Vegas 
so that he knows you have the confidence in him to bounce back. Yep. That would be it. That would be it for me. I think that makes sense. Let's do the Sharks then. Okay, let's, let's do talk Sharks. about them. So here, here's my nugget on them. Okay. They're 27th in 5-1-5 goal differential so far this season, which is bad. Their underlying numbers are actually on natural statics seem to be quite better. Like they're like middle of the pack in terms of um, high danger chances, in terms of expected goals. Like it seems like they've been dragged down by goaltending. I think there's something wonky with those numbers because ClearSight Analytics has the Sharks is surrendering the most rush chances against an entire league. Yikes. And I think that's not being properly captured by those expected goal metrics. Like I think they've been worse than their underlying numbers would indicate. And James Reimer has actually been remarkably good. Now, Reimer himself isn't playing against Seattle today, I believe, because he's hurt. Got it. And so if he's out for this matchup, it's going to be Kapo Kakanen, most likely, who's significantly worse at stopping pucks yeah. than James Reimer. So that's a good thing for the Canucks. That is a good thing for the Canucks. James Reimer, though, is not the type of goalie. Like, James Reimer is the type of goalie who gives uh, teams that generate a lot of chances mm-hmm. a tough time because he's yeah. a good blocking goalie. Right. But the Canucks are a efficiency machine. Right. So, like, I don't know that, I don't know that Kakinen's a, a, a much worse matchup for them in particular. Yeah. Right? Because the Canucks That's just, fair. they have so many one-shot scores. What's been behind the Eric Carlson resurgence? He looks really good. Yeah. Here's the thing. So, he looked really he good. Is really good. He looked really good last year. And he didn't necessarily have the points to back it up because they just weren't scoring as often with him on the ice. And it was a bit of puck luck. Like, in terms of him driving offensive metrics, they were pretty similar to what they are this season. He's just getting, like, he's shooting 15 or 16% himself. The right. team is scoring on, like, 13 or 14% of the shots they take with him on the ice. That's going to regress, right? But physically, he looks like peak Eric Carlson in terms of, like, flying up and down the ice, creating literally every single thing they do as a team. Like, with him out there, they're really good. When he's not, they're quite bad. Right. Um, he's used to those types of playing environments. And I think that's why, like, their power play is really good because their four or five best skaters are really good, right? When you factor in Meyer and Hurdle as well. But as soon as you start going through that bottom six and that second and third pairing, that's where they get really exposed. So I think it's actually like a pretty fine matchup for the Canucks. Um, now they struggle with playing against speed and the Canucks aren't necessarily going to be burning them off of the rush attack. So maybe the Sharks are viewing that matchup as like, oh, this is actually a pretty good one for us as well. Yeah, well, the, the Canucks get crushed yeah. in terms of rush chances right. against, or right. the differential between rush But they don't create that much against. themselves either. No, they right? don't. Yeah. So... Um, maybe a bit of a stick in the mud matchup yes. on Sunday. Yeah, which is fine because there's good football. On. <laughs> I'm kidding. We'll be watching the Canucks game. Um, all right, Capitals. Capitals just finished beating the Flames. Well, first of all, what's wrong with the Flames? Why is Markstrom not making saves? Yeah, their save percentage as a team in general has been quite bad. Awful. I think you'd expect that to turn around. I think there's enough track record there, and defensively, like all their metrics look fine. And Vladar's fine. I'm worried about them offensively. Like, they're playing different than they did last year. They clearly have different personnel as well. But, like, they've really – they've embraced every single negative stereotype we have of Daryl Sutter hockey, which is, like, it's overly simplistic. They're just trying to constantly just get in the zone, put it on net, and then try to forecheck. And last year, they didn't really play like that. Like, last year, especially that top line, Mm -hmm. they were getting in there. They were creating east-west. They were trying all these fancy passing plays. And they kind of reverted back to – a pretty bland board like style of hockey. Um, and so I'm worried about their offensive creativity right now. And I think that's sort of bleeding into all the results. The caps aren't very good. No, but they have something that gives the Canucks fits, which is a defense that can move the puck. It can, although Orlov's out now. Right. And especially defensively, the foot speed on that blue line is 
pretty bleak. It's basically like Eric Gustafson is on the top pairing with yeah. John Carlson, both yes. guys. And then it's Ferrari Jensen with lead boots on. Ferrari Jensen and then Matt Irwin and Trevor Van Riemsdyk, I believe, Yikes. is the third pairing. It's not great. No, that's dicey. Yeah. So that feels like an opportunity game then for a Canucks team that they they won't be materially faster than the Canucks. That's like one. I of think the Canucks are be faster than them. I yeah. think so too. Yeah. That's one of the few opponents they'll face this year where they're the faster team, probably. Yes. Yikes. Okay. Um, and what's going right for the Caps? That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, here's not the much. They're like literally middling in every single metric. Yeah. Like there's there's nothing to write home about. They're not necessarily terrible on anything. I think their power play isn't clearly what it used to be. Not having Nicholas Baxter on the half wall hurts them, but, well, it's, but it's so predictable. It's right? also just designed to get Ovi to the goals record. Absolutely. And I kind of respect Which is fine. That. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, other than that, I mean, it's 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 a team that just wants to grind it out. And like we saw them, they, they shot out the planes today, I believe, or, or they were up yeah. 3 nothing at some point last we were watching. So they're a pretty good defensive team under Laviolette, and, and Kemper's been fine, and, and Lindgren as well. So they're not going to give you that much, but they des- definitely don't like instill any fear in you in terms of beating you with speed. Yeah, I think it's been a bit since the Canucks had a really good game against the Caps. The Caps are like one of those teams that have just like a level of veteran savvy that seems to give the Canucks real problems. Well, they probably should have won that one at the start of the year, right? That was during their like streak of blowing multi-goal leads. Yeah, uh, but Kuznetsov was just right. so like so immense in yeah. that game that I don't think anyone came away from it being like, well, Vancouver deserved that one. Right, right, right. You know? All right. And then, to close out the week, mm. my Florida Panthers oh, roll into town. Are they still your Florida Panthers? No. no. I mean, I, I know like four guys on the team now. I think it's in... Isn't the game in Florida? No. Oh, it's here. Oh, okay. Nice. They, they go to Florida in uh, January. Ah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I'm uh, going to try and finagle my way <laughs> yeah. into it, it, to go visit my old friends. But um, yeah, so the Florida Panthers, my Florida Panthers. I'm still calling them that. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, my Florida Panthers, my Toronto Maple Leafs. I think I get both of those. Okay. No? Sure. Yeah, it's your show, man. <laughs> you can, do, show, it. You can yeah. do whatever you want. Fair. Um, how has Florida managed to maintain their perch as one of the best teams in the East, despite the fact that they have no defensemen until Aaron Eckblad returned like just last week? Yeah, it's remarkable because if you look, every single defense combination they've used this season that doesn't include Mark Stahl has been awesome. And really every forward combination they've used that doesn't include Eric Stahl has been awesome. So I'm thinking, I'm sensing a common denominator there in terms of what's working and what isn't working for them. What's causing them to Um, stall? (laughs) There we go. Um, Here's the thing for you. Last year, so we have data going back to 2007, right? In terms of like what we call the analytics era. The Panthers last year were the best offensive team we've ever seen. In terms of shots. High danger chances, until, until, expected goals, of course, in the regular played, season. Until you played a one through one on them for four games. Yeah. yeah, they had no problem solving skills. But in the regular season, they just overwhelmed teams with their speed and just relentless attack. This year, they're better in every single one of those metrics, except for goals, because their shooting percentages come down from 11 to like eight and a half. And, which was going to happen. Which was going to happen. But they've changed the way they play, as we also expected. I remember you and I did a big show on my podcast after the Matthew Kachuk trade, and part of the logic for that trade. I saw a lot of Panthers personnel, by the way, during Hall of Fame weekend. Right. And people kept bringing up that podcast as like the only, they said it was the only outlet that was fair to the Cal- uh, to the Florida Panthers for their side of the trade. Wow. They were like, we kept looking for other coverage that was, and you guys were the only guy. And I was like, well, what do you expect? I'm obviously out here stumping for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, th- I think, I think we presented 
both sides, especially in terms of the logic behind the trades. Right now, how it works out is entirely different. But Matthew Kachuk's given them exactly what they hope they'd get. Mm-hmm. Like they're play, they're attacking much more from below the goal line. They're dominating deep in the offensive zone. That's great. Now, the speed element and the rush has slowed down a little bit, and maybe that's why the shooting percentage has dipped as well. But I, I'd expect them to come up in that regard and score a lot of goals as we go on here. So like, I have no worries about them. I think they're just as scary as they were last year, if not more. Is Radko Gudis hockey Shane Battier? In what in what regard? Just like just whoever like, just he like, plays on, he makes them better. Just like a, he, I think he's a weirdly under. I think he might be the most underrated player of the last decade. He's more physically gifted, right? Like and especially Shane in terms of physicality. Shane, Shane Battier was, was like, a fifth overall pick. He was, but he was like that's because he was the consummate professional as like a, a toddler. Like he's like always <laughs> he's like a better. Th- yeah, eighteen going on thirty five. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's I think that's. Um, you're remembering late career Shane Battier. Okay, but isn't Shane Battier known, like, his defining trait is, like, professionalism and class? And Radko Gudis is known for, like, no, he's questionable the no... hits that are, like, slightly after... He's the no-stats all-star, is really what he is. <laughs> okay, okay, that's where you're taking this call. Yeah, like, he's... He provides a level of value that just no one can measure or that doesn't show up except that his teams always win. Right. And go on wild win streaks. Yes. And I, I feel like Radko Gudis, everywhere he's gone, that those teams have overperformed. Yeah. You know? And and I think maybe maybe it's partly because of the bad hits. Maybe he gets more space. Maybe he's just a good guy. I think he's definitely a really smart puck mover. Mm-hmm. There's something about his game. Like, everywhere yeah. he goes, those teams do outrageously well. And for some reason, we never credit the one common denominator, which is Radko Gudis. Well, and you know what the secret sauce is, right? What? He's like the most aggressive neutral zone defender in the league. Right which is how every team should be playing. Unfortunately, defensemen are programmed to sag back and play conservatively. And mm-hmm. I think that, that I think that's what you glean from that as opposed to any other thing. Because like everyone always talks about the hits he throws and all this stuff. But like if you actually just watch the philosophy of the way he plays, it's actually like very modern. Like he's a bit of a throwback player, but his, his throwback stylistically plays is like a very modern approach. Because mm. he, I mean... You know, Radko Gudis, Josh Mahura. Yeah. Like, let's outscore teams. They should not be doing this well. There's no reason why that should work that well. Right. But it does, and it's not the first time. It's like they've they've thrown waiver guys on Radko Gudis pairs for, like, two years, and every time it just – it's money. Yes. I don't know. Shane uh, Shane Battier, Radko Gudis, forever linked in my head now. It's not quite as good as your your analogy of – what was it? Tight fantasy football tight ends being equivalent to NHL goalies, but it's close. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a close second. What are we seeing right now out of the Panthers down the middle, and mm-hmm. how much is their skill level at center? Do you think, in addition to Radko Gudis's greatness, um, protecting everyone else on the on the blue line? Yeah, I think there's certainly an element of that. I mean, the way they play is so friendly for like players who can just skate and understand what's happening out there. So I think they have a lot of smart players. Uh, it's what I'd say is the top line is so good right now that I think even if they're not scoring, everyone that comes out after them is inherently playing from ahead because everyone's the other teams are tired, right? Yeah. They're like, oh, I just want to get off the ice, and all of a sudden you have the puck and you're attacking downhill. And so what Barkov, Rahegi, and Kachuk are doing is, I mean, their underlying metrics are just through the roof in every single category right now, and so that's going to be a, a massive handful for anyone to deal with. I think especially the Canucks blue line. You made fun of me for my love for E2 Lesterainen, right? But Mm-hmm. How well is he playing? He's playing well. Yeah, he's I, just I, normal. Well, I pushed back at including him in the Barkov category, which I think was a fair take. On well, I didn't. Part. 
did I do that? <laughs> I think you were like, yeah, Barkov, Itulisterainen. <laughs> I was just going through. I was just going through good players. <laughs> yeah, but he's played incredible. He has, yeah. I think that edge down the middle. Where's Anton Lindell playing? Well, I believe he's playing on the second line with Sam Reinhardt, right? Okay, and then they're kind of cycling in through the, who the, the third guy is there. And Reinhardt right now is just getting buried by like the worst on ice shooting percentage in the league. So I've, I have no worries about his game. Um, mm. Why you, you don't like Reinhardt? I oh sorry Reinhardt. Yeah. Oh sorry, I thought we were talking Bennett. No, I was talking to Re- Reinhardt okay. and Lundell. Yeah, no, yeah, Reinhardt will be fine. Yeah, I mean the two of them with Mason Marchman last year in that limited sample like posted the best numbers in the league, and yeah. I think there was some skepticism on how much that can continue. The regressions hit pretty hard, but I think they're still playing good from a process perspective. And so. and where's Bennett not playing? That's a great question. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have their do you have your laptop right now? Put up pull up their yeah, uh, well, daily faceoff. I actually don't know where Ben is playing, but I, I know figured... their fourth line is uh one of my personal favorites, Ryan Lomberg with Patrick Hornquist and Eric Stahl. And you love um, Ryan Lomberg. I assume this probably involves like Colin White. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, Bennett, I was just I'm oh, so Bennett's playing with White and Lusterainen's actually playing okay. left wing on the second line. That's at a the pretty moment. big uh as much as you love Lusterainen. Bennett yeah. playing with Jonathan Huberto putting the puck on a silver platter for him. Yeah, and then, Anth- to... and then Anthony Duclair just like blowing everyone back with his yeah. speed. Going to that is a is a bit of a. Well, and they're gonna have to they're gonna have to make a move anyway. The Florida Panthers still a big threat. Yes. So Canucks overall, Vegas, San Jose, tough back to back. Yeah. Uh, this this sort of iffy Washington team, and then the Panthers buzzsaw. Uh, overall, you'd call that a pretty tough week. Yeah, I'd say two and two. Would be, good? would be good. Would be good. Yeah, well, that's probably fair, right? Like nah, they can I think take so. the Capitals and Sharks games. I think everything else is about I, money. I think two two is always a good outcome for a team like the Canucks. Yeah. Frankly, yeah. Um, what are you seeing? Just before we let you go, before we end the show, thanks to everyone for joining us. What are you seeing overall from the Canucks? What are your expectations? There's some excitement in the market now that they've gone seven four and one in their last twelve and are only three points out of a playoff spot. Yeah. Um, fool's gold. Do you? What, what are you seeing from this team? Do you think at least they're an elite offense? I think so. I think the efficiency okay. point that you're making is certainly fair. Like, I think there was a bit of natural regression that we would have expected. I thought the performance we saw against the Avalanche was was pretty encouraging. Now, I think last time we talked about the Avalanche, we both ex- noted that maybe we shouldn't expect to get their best performance every night because considering they're probably playing the long game here. But, mm-hmm. like, going into Colorado and playing the way they did, I think you'll take that every every day of the week. So, yeah, I think, I think there's reasons to be encouraged. Like, it's a lot of the same regardless of the result. Like, the blue line – is highly concerning. I think we should expect their goaltending to make more saves than they did before at the start of the year. And the offense, especially the power play, should be more efficient than it had been. So we're seeing all of that kind of regress back to where we'd expect, and you're seeing slightly better results now. Perfect. Dimitri, thank you. I'll stick around. Do your show. Thanks to everyone for hanging out with me for two hours, filling the mailbag, talking to Dave Nonis, doing the PDO report. It's been a blast. You're listening to Canucks Talk, and thank you very much for doing so on Sportsnet 650.